You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you. The gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This week, I'm joined by three extremely talented artists, the brilliant minds behind Mad Hatter, the musical. I'm talking to Vincent Connor, Michael J. Polo, and Victor Valdez. These three are the creators of the musical, and seriously, they have so much experience on stage and education and music that it would take me all day to list their credentials. So I just want to jump in. We're going to fall down the rabbit hole of opera, musical theater, mental health, and especially their mad adaptation that is bringing Hatter to the stage. I'm so excited you guys are here. It's my first time with three people on, so let's do it. So gentlemen... Welcome to uh, the All Things Alice podcast. However, for today, I'm going to change it to All Things Hatter because we're going to be talking about your very exciting musical, The Mad Hatter Musical. And now, I've never done a podcast with three guests, but I'm going to ask each of you to uh, just introduce yourself and tell a little bit about what your role is in the musical. I'll start with you, Vince, or do you like to go by Vincent? Either one is good. I do go by Vincent Connor professionally, and then Vince if you know me. 
Okay. <laughs> so uh, what is your role in the uh, musical? Absolutely. So I am the co-creator of Mad Hat of Musical. I am responsible for the book. I wrote the story and have been working, you know, since 2018 on um, building the show. Uh, I was the original director of the piece in Lon at the London Workshop. And now I'm stepping into the role of the Mad Hatter in Montreal. Oh, so wow. Wow. Uh, that is very exciting. You're a Renaissance man. Um, you know, wearing many hats, as one would say. <laughs> I, I am expecting a lot of puns today. Okay. <laughs> um, so tell me, um, you guys are all very accomplished. So, But Vince, tell me some piece of work that you're really proud of. So our audience has a broader sense of your general um, creativity? Sure. You know, I, I did all my education in singing. And so I did undergraduate through doctorate in vocal performance. And so I have gone and I have sung professional opera. And then uh, my career has transitioned to um, directing, opera directing. And now I'm dabbling a lot in actually the commercial field of music. And I'm a part of a commercial music trio called Element Trio. And we get to sing around the world. And we just did a concert in Vienna and Montreal this past summer. So I, I don't know if we're going to have enough time in this podcast. This might be like a four-hour podcast because I'm very excited about everything you just said. Michael, your role and something that you're really proud of that you've worked on separate from the Mad Hatter musical. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a composer, composer of Mad Hatter the musical. Um, Vincent and I had a wonderful story kind of putting this together from the beginning. And then we were so lucky to have Victor kind of join us in uh, really enhancing everything that we were already working on. Um, but I mean, something I'm so proud of, um, honestly, is uh, the relationship that Vincent, I, uh, and Victor have together because honestly, we're coming from so many different backgrounds. Um, Vince and I have been working together since 2016. Um, we started primarily in the opera space and then we started working together um, really in Vienna and London um, and now you know, internationally, even beyond those two cities. And um, I think the thing I'm probably the most proud of creatively is the synergy and the creative um, input that we all have in the collaboration uh, more than anything. But with that being said, I think one of my favorite moments um, that we had is uh, really how this story began. Um, and it really became out of necessity, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. Um, but it really begins with me and Vince on a bench in London is really kind of where it began. So I'm going to hit the pause button there. Yes, yes. I, um, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about the story behind the story. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, but really, I mean, it's been such a tremendous uh, environment and that we've been working in for the past several years. And especially now in 2023. Um, and looking towards the future, I'm so excited, you know, for everything that's happening. So we also are going to talk about the idea of that collaboration and how it's different in musicals than in other mediums. Um, and so I'll be curious to hear more about that as well. Victor, only because the way I'm following the screen, I'm coming to you to kick off the last part of this. So tell me, tell me your uh, your favorite piece of work and uh, what you're doing on this musical. So on the show, I am a songwriter. I'm well, like Mike said, once the boys got the show going, got the story going, knew where it was going, I kind of inserted myself in the project and I just started hearing the music and um, 
I thought, wait, what do we do? When do we do this and this? When do we do this and that? Like Michael said, their backgrounds are mo mostly in the classical opera side of music. And I come from Latin America. I'm originally from Venezuela, um, where I grew up singing pop, singing ballads. And that's what I what I strive on. Um, so I kind of added that pop sensibility to their classical, which is what makes the music very, very different and very cool. Um, and I'm just like Vince, actually, I am um, joining the cast in Montreal as one of the lead characters. Her name is Yola. I'm a Cheshire cat, which is why now my hair is kind of purple pink. Um, and something that I'm very proud of, I guess, uh, when I was 18, back in Venezuela, I was composing my own music in Spanish, and I got to open the concert for Luis Fonsi, the guy that wow. sings Despacito. Wow. So that was definitely a pretty huge deal. <laughs> That's a big deal. So um, before we jump into the whole process, let's give the uh, listeners the elevator pitch. Somebody's got to give an elevator pitch. Vince, go for it. It's all yeah. yours. It's all Vince, you, baby. go for it. Yeah. Oh, no pressure or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I've always been fascinated with the character of the Mad Hatter. And, you know, as, as time has evolved over the past hundred years, I think that my fascination has is also a joint fascination with other people. And I've always gone down the rabbit hole myself of, what his backstory was. And so um, this is a story of, um, you know, a crippled man um, from boyhood and who, you know, finds his way to Wonderland. And so that's very simply what it is. Um, since in, in our post COVID world, we have a lot of, you know, archetypes of mental health awareness um, wrapped up into the musical. And, you know, we tend to be in this place in history where we're fascinated with this idea of the villain. And I didn't want to make the Mad Hatter a villain, but we play with the idea of him being an anti-hero, mm. um, making human mistakes um, just as, as anybody would. Um, and because of the, the, the trade of being a Hatter back in the Victorian period, they would use mercury. And so the Mad Hatter suffers from mercury poisoning which is in large part why he has become mentally unstable, mad, you name it. So, um, but, you know, there's, there's many different levels of the story. So you could sort of take it from the, the, the fantasy of the wonderland versus the, the reality of the realism of, of a man going insane. So does the musical go back and forth between our world and wonderland um, so you're using the juxtaposition of those two to tell your story. So he's has his mental health issues here. And then in Wonderland, he starts to find himself. Correct. Yeah, we go back and forth in the realms of being in, you know, turn of the century London um, versus being um, in Wonderland. And, you know, just as Lewis Carroll uses the rabbit hole or the looking glass as a, um, you know, as a way to get there, we use actually his hat acts as a port key. So. Oh, that's that's so clever. I was going to ask, is there a rabbit hole? Is there a wardrobe? Is there a toll booth? Is there a mirror? But a hat, that makes perfect sense. That's very clever. That's awesome. I love the idea, you know, that you guys are playing with going back and forth. Um, obviously, I did that in my own work. So I think you must be geniuses as well. 
<laughs> so, okay. So let's go. Um, I get the question all of the time when I worked on the Looking Glass Wars, um, you know, the story behind the story. And for me, it was a British museum and finding a deck of cards that led to an antiquities dealer. And I discovered what is the true story of what really happened. So what is your story behind the story? And, and, and then I'd also like to know how each of you became involved, sort of the sequence of, of that. Can, can I take this, Vince? Do you mind? I think I tell this story the best. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Michael. Okay, good. So Vince and I started working together in 2016. Vince is a director, and I was a production coordinator and director uh, and producer on a uh, show that we did together called Madam Butterfly. This was in with an opera company here in the States. And Vince and I started working in Vienna, Austria. And then this was in 2018. Um, now, granted, you must understand that these are education programs that we were running, primarily in the opera sector. And we started the branch out and we said, you know what, we should start looking at doing some musical theater programs. So Vince and I, in 2018, took a flight to London in an effort to build a new program called the London Summer Music Theater Academy. And so we booked the theater, we booked the hotel, we booked the rehearsal space, and then we were looking for a show to do. And as the story goes, we, we were calling MTI looking for rights to do a show and we couldn't get granted anything. And so Vince and I, we had booked everything in preparation for a 2019 production. And we were on a bench in, in London trying to decide what it is that we're going to do. And Vince very candidly had said, and even for years prior, he said, Mike, you're a composer, I'm a director, we should do something collaboratively. And so he said to me, he goes, I have a great idea. And I said, what's that? He goes, Mad Hatter. I said, Mad Hatter what? He said, we're writing a musical. And I said, <laughs> absolutely no. And I was just adamantly against it at the point because we're working primarily as producers and educators. And then he started to tell me a bit about the story of what, he, what it was that he was thinking. And I thought, you know what? Why not? I'm a composer. He's a storyteller, director. Why not that we just join forces creatively because we've always been working together administratively. And so this was the summer of July uh, 2018. And so I went home, you know, after Vincent and I's conversation and I started writing and it was just like, we started working together and it was like, you know what, why not do this? Because this isn't a program. This is a new story. And Vince had so many creative ideas. I had some ideas. And as we were writing and as we were composing, Victor was very much listening to what was happening. And he, I, he says he inserted himself I don't think that's correct. I think that he was objectively listening to what was happening. And he said, you know what? I also have some creative ideas <laughs> about what should happen. And it was so welcomed. It was such a wonderful way of experiencing creativity. And so it really did become quite of a journey as we led into 2019 with the original production, which was very much a kind of workshop, you know, student led um, mm -hmm. with the full ensemble in a West End theater. Um, and it was such a kind of, you know, uh, way for us to not only work creatively, but then after the product was done, we all said, wow, maybe we should pursue this even further. Creatively, it kind of forced us to kind of work in a way to identify, you know, that this story might actually have a tremendous impact on not only the audiences that well received it in London, but that it could potentially expand into other audiences and really kind of become a significant work that can compete with many um, and existing, you know, other shows. 
Well, it seems to me that it can do both. It can be a nice, you know, big musical, but also have that educational component that you were talking about. Hey, Victor, can you share some of the creative ideas that inspired them to, you know, join forces? I can jump in really quick first. So I remember the very specific day. So first of all, you probably know that Victor and I are engaged. So he's my fiance. So congratulations. Um, let's not jump over you. the let's not jump over the headline. <laughs> okay. So, I, so basically, just to piggyback on what Mike said, um, you know, being having booked the Leicester Square Theater in the heart of the West End, we weren't able to get approved for anything because of it was in direct competition with forty other shows. And so writing something original was something that we actually really needed to do. And I'll, I, I'll never forget. So I really wanted to add this idea of Tweedledee and Tweedledum from the show without actually putting them in. And so um, when the Hatter gets to Wonderland in our show, we have the cards acting almost in this Tweedledee, Tweedledum energy. Mm-hmm. And so they in our show, the, there's this number called the Rules of Wonderland, where the the spades, who are the Queens of Hearts servants, um, if you will, um, are sort of, you know, giving this sort of three stooges, kingpin energy. And I was trying to like put together some lyrics and rhymes. And really what Victor does so well is he has this amazing um, character about him in his piano bar shows. And I think that he sort of saw what Mike and I were trying to do. And he completely like, he saw the energy and he brought it. And then of course, now he's, He's he's completely engulfed in the whole thing. But okay, now Victor, <laughs> <laughs> please. And scene. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I don't know how much more to add to that. But that, like I said, the boys' uh, background being more in classical and in opera. I the reason why I love musical theater so much is because I think it's so besides being so personal to so many people in so many different ways, because it hits so many people, it, it doesn't matter what everyone's going through or if that that thing that everyone's going through is so different between each other, they all find something to relate to in a musical. Um, first that, but also I just feel like the songs are so memorable. Everything is, is so, like it really can have that potential to, impact you like visually and like the music it can impact you so much that you just remember it forever um and opera has that in a very different way to musical theater i am more used to like vince has done musical theater as well uh wait like before he started doing opera um but it was always like, you know, the older musicals that have more, actually that operatic sound. I am more in the contemporary mm-hmm. musical side. Like I'm like Wicked, Dear Evan Hansen, like those are my jams. Um, so what I always tried to kind of find in the music that uh, Mike was composing as a classical composer was like, you know, this right here sounds very beautiful, but it might be a little too complex for musical theater audiences. It's mm-hmm. not an it's not an opera audience because when you go to the opera, you expect you know complexity and mm-hmm. you expect something very like 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know Grand. how to describe it, but much more complex than right. what musical theater is these days specifically. So I kind of really enjoyed finding that mainstream pop sound around what Mike was composing as a classical composer. And I I think that uh, uh, chemistry between the two ideas is what has made this process so fun to do. Really. That's interesting you bring up Wicked. And I wanted to ask you guys, because Wicked obviously is was such a big hit and it's a reimagining and the story behind the story. And, you know, people love familiar stories told in unfamiliar ways, um, which is what Wicked did. It also let the audience puzzle out familiar faces and familiar themes. So I'm wondering, because Wicked was hugely successful, but then there was Wonderland, Frank Wildhorn's musical that was, you know, not as successful. And I imagine you probably studied or listened to both to see the qualities that worked for the musical versus the ones that didn't work for the musical. I think we all know that you want songs that people are humming on the way out of the theater. And if you have that, you're on your way. So can you talk about those two musicals, uh, Wicked and Wonderland, and any influence they might have had on your choices? I do think there's there's something that I heard a few years ago actually because yeah, I I've always been composing pop music and and my own songs and there was one point where I was I don't know where I heard this but I heard that everything people are writing these days have has already been done everything's already been done like there's so much music out there it's impossible for you to do something that doesn't quite remind you of something else sometimes now. With that, though, there's definitely going to be influences or, you know, similarities, just like you said. I mean, Wicked is uh, uh, the spinoff of The Wizard of Oz. Basically, what we're doing is the spinoff of Alice in Wonderland with Mad Hatter. So just right there is a similarity where things get a little different is, I think, with what Mike is doing or how things started and me coming from also i have that the, the latin sensibility with music because we i'm being coming from venezuela born and raised i've only been in the country for oh my god it's going to be nine years this month this month actually nine years i come with besides having that love for love songs which i love drama just i mean mike said it like three times in the last two minutes but yeah I do love <laughs> drama and dramatic lyrics and like beautiful romantic lyrics so I was able to add a lot of that to the show but also some of the songs I was able to also hit that Latin vibe there's one very very specific one that we're super excited about because it's it kind of started as a joke uh as this like very dance number like electronic EDM number and I kind of heard it and went a completely different route and took it very Latin American dance song, like what is very, very booming these days in, in the radio. So I feel like there are more sensibilities and there are different dynamics in the way that this show has come up. And also the the story of it and how it's 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 developed is very different to to any other show and i think vince can elaborate on that a lot of it is very very different you're right that everything has been done but the thing that's unique is each of you and your voice 
whether it's coming through the music or your performing or the writing. And it's the commingling of that that brings something fresh. And it's also whether you're combining like a new feel of a genre or in these songs. And so what you're talking about in terms of the Latin influence, the classical, the, um, the opera, operatic aspects, you know, those are the things that will get people that are listening excited because we're buying into your own imagination and your voice. And I would think that that's the thing you have to trust, right? I mean, that's what you're leaning on. And so this collaboration, what I'm hearing that the three of you have this synergy that you keep talking about, that's what is going to, hopefully, that'll make it special and that'll make it feel unique. And so, as I said, people like familiar stories told in unfamiliar ways. And everything you've said to me so far leads me to think that that's what is going to attract an audience. What do you, what do you think, Vince? I think so. You know, I, I think life is all about relationships. And with the three of us, there's there seems to be an absence of ego, you know, which I think allows us to really get vulnerable to explore these archetypes of identity and fantasy and, you know, almost even in a, a psychedelic story like Alice in Wonderland, you know, there's it allows us to dig deep within a story, within a story, within a story. And again, I think, I mean, just like I'm Victor is my fiance. I mean, Mike is going to be the best man at our wedding. It's it's a very interesting that the three of us decided just to write a musical together, you know, and um, just to touch base on sort of your last question about, you know, Wild Horns Wonderland versus Wicked. I mean, when we did this workshop in London, we were directly compared to Wicked's. People said it was the next, the next Wicked, which is an honor, you know, I mean, it's a complete honor because I, I do believe that that show is a masterpiece because it has all these different, um, you know, all these different things that one would want in a musical. You know, the the climax, the the, the memorable melodies, the um, you know, the story. All, all of it is just so witty and 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 so good. And then you know, Frank Wildhorn was a brilliant composer. You know, not not every show is a hit, and unfortunately, Wonderland was not. Um, and I really enjoyed you know, listening to his music and listening to Jekyll and Hyde is probably one of my favorites that he did. And it's, you know, it's interesting to find our own voice and our own path within that. But definitely collaboration is is very interesting. And so to, to close up that, that collaboration thing, it also does help that we are all three so close because we have no problem telling each other that we don't like something. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's no politics in here, which is very good. We're very open between the three of us. So it's very easy to fix things very, very fast. I don't think people realize with musicals how critical that is and how different because it's um you do so much work speculatively in the beginning. So it is the, all of the juice is the doing of it, the coming together and the sharing and creating. So that, in my experience, is wholly different than, you know, getting hired to write a TV show and having lots of chefs. How important is that dynamic that you can tell each other to fuck off if you need to? <laughs> it's very important. Oh, my God. So, look, I can tell you, you know what, Frank, I, I, I can tell you like this. I am probably the last person you ever want to hear sing anything. 
Okay. <laughs> and so I'm very vulnerable when it comes to people hearing me sing. Now, granted, you know, I can teach sight singing, believe it or not. You know, I mean, I can do this. It's very uncomfortable to listen to. Um, I did this for a long time at the university. But the one thing that I can do with these gentlemen is that I can sing an idea to them and they look past the quality of my voice and they look at what it is that I'm trying to do. Because oftentimes people come to the table with ideas and they get stuck on what it is that you're trying to do um, and what you can immediately show. They don't see the grand idea. And so, and this is the one thing that I really appreciate about both Vince and Victor is that, you know, they can listen past my limitations um, and likewise, and this is where it's truly collaborative. And this is where it's truly humiliating, not in a, not in a humiliating way, but in a humble way that we can approach each other without our pride or, you know, our egos and that we can be objective with like, you know what, why don't we try this chord or why don't we try this lyric or why don't we try this? And this is such a, delicate space for creatives to play with because you're vulnerable at the moment that you express something creatively because people will judge it immediately. And the safest place where people can judge what it is that you're doing is immediately, much like a family, they do it from a place of love. And our love is purely with each other and for the show. And so we're looking for the success of the show. So when I approach Victor with like, we were just doing this the other day with the finale for what it is that we're doing. And I was like, look, sit, let, listen to this. Let's go through it. And he sent me back, you know, he's like, Mike, try this chord. And then I changed it and I sent it back to him. He's like, well, I think this, I think that. What about this chord inversion? We start getting to the details. And so it is a kind of purely vulnerable, purely subjective space, but then a willingness to change, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the more difficult things I've seen other collaborative projects have is that some people get bent on ideas and they're unwilling to change. Now, granted, I had 15 years of composition lessons. So I was, you know, all the time going into my lesson being told I'm a terrible composer. <laughs> you know? But what's nice here, what we have is it's a, it's an energy, it's a family orientation um, that we can be objective with each other and share in the collaboration of the ideas to enhance the project. Like, you know, while we all have our separate roles, it is very much one unit. And I think that that's how we've kind of felt, especially when we all started to come together leading up to the show in 2019. Right, gentlemen, wouldn't you agree with me? Or Actually, yes. But, you know, you said we all have three separate roles, but that's, I think, the magic of our show is that we've all also done each other's roles. You know, yeah. some story has directly come from you, Mike. Um, I've given you some melodies to consider for like we really and that's not the normal case when you are writing a musical the book writer is the book writer the lyricist is the lyricist and the composer is the composer the arranger is the arranger we have this like this collaboration that is different and melting pot of ideas (laughs) melting pot yeah 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 that's beautifully said and I think that's interesting but can you kind of walk us through why do musicals usually take they seem to take a very long time to come to fruition what are all the factors that go into you know getting it ready to put on its feet now i know you guys had it's been on its feet you're doing a concert there was the pandemic you can please share how that got in the way um so you have that but um generally these things are very incremental in terms of the building blocks and this is a whole bunch of questions at the same time, because I'm curious about putting it on its feet in front of an audience. So typically when a musical is written, the, the, one of the questions was, 
why does it take so long to get to Broadway? Or why does it take so long to get to La Jolla? Like, like why, why does 10 years go by working on this, right? It, it can start from a few different ways. Traditionally, what happens is a producer who's, pr- who's produced a musical before will help to cultivate a creative team, put together a book writer, a composer that they like, and begin to generate a story. And then over the next three years, three to five years, they're developing the story um, through um, table reads, through 40-hour workshops, 125-hour workshops, where they will begin to add equity actors involved and try to elevate the piece um, after each hearing it to, to, to continue to grow it into a product that is then commercialized and sellable that that producer can then go get investors and other producers to believe in their idea to raise now it costs about $20 million to get to Broadway, right. you know? So that's, so that's why it, it traditionally it takes so long, you know? Now, part of the problem with this process is it's very financially driven, you know? Uh, a producer has to come up with the idea and sometimes start paying creatives to for their time to be involved in the idea. Um, in this case, um, Mike and I have these study abroad programs in Vienna that we, we run the Vienna Summer Music Festival in Austria, which is an education program um, with a business model. It's very simple. If you want to be a classical musician, we're going to bring you to um, one of the classical meccas, which is Vienna, right? Which is very similar to London. If you want to study musical theater, um, if, we're, if you're not going to come to New York, we want to bring you to London to have that study abroad experience to work with West End actors across the pond. So you can get a different perspective as a young creative, as a young actor, as a young writer. And so we sense this whole this hole in education, and we wanted to be um, on the forefront of sort of changing that horizon. And so we got this idea to write a musical, and we already, as producers, we have created a space for it. And so traditionally, there might not be a workshop or a performance of the musical for up to three to five years because of all of these things. And then it almost takes sometimes a half a million dollars just to get it performed. And so we luckily have built the asset that now going forward, the London Music Theatre Academy is going to be for new musicals where we're actually developing new work right now, aside from Mad Hatter. Um, so this summer working on one with Joe Barrows with the New York Theatre Barn called Winner. And we want to sort of help help this process because to be honest, it, it's a hard and broken process to develop a musical and so we I think that we have found a way not only with our show but helping musical theater in general as a way to to bring awareness and to bring new projects to life. What you're saying is you've created an infrastructure so as the creatives and as producers and because of all the educational things you have this facility to allow um, your musical and hopefully other people's musicals to uh, find their legs and be developed without the traditional you know process of the New York producer or the the Broadway producer I should say. Well we've had amazing more traditional type development steps through this process. So, you know, typically a a workshop is one of the first thing that happens. Now our workshop is what we're calling our first performance was with costumes, was in the theater, was with actors who, you know, and we actually got to see our show and fix what we wanted to fix because we saw it, you know, and I'll just sort of back up a second, like actually seeing this show as a creator, it was one of the first times in my life 
that I knew that I was a part of something bigger than myself. It was a very prolific moment in my history as a as a creative. You know, it was one of my favorite times in my life. You know, and since then we've had a New York presentation in New York, which is a very traditional step in development, and that led us to now going to our next step, which is going to be a full orchestra concert of our music, where the music gets to be the hero in Montreal next week. And so, you know, and that is a non-traditional step. So we did the industry presentation, we did a workshop in a non-traditional way, but it's it's all been very synergistic. Everything connects to the next step, which is really cool. I, you know, I would just add to that. I think what, what, one unique thing that I think both Vince and I and Victor can agree with is that you know, when we when Vince and I had already been doing new opera in Vienna, which is a unique thing in of itself, because we've been used to the grind of producing up and putting up a show. And I think for many composers, you know, I mean, like I've I've been in the production space since I was 19. Vince has been in the production space since I Vince. I mean, how long have you you've been in the production? It's been for a while. You know what I mean? But the one thing that's nice is that it came from a place first to change the model of education specifically because I was a university professor, you know what I mean? For a while for, and I still am, I still teach adjunct, but I had, I was full-time for a long time at university of Florida. Vince was teaching full-time and it really, we realized that it's the 21st century, early part of the 21st century education in the performing arts is changing drastically. And so Vince and I's business model was to, if we're going to study with the best people on the planet, we need to go to the cities that they live in. Mm. And this is why when I said at the beginning, when we went to London, this project came out of necessity because mm. it was based on education. Right. Um, and then the story came out of uh, creatively. And I think it's an honor and a throwback to really what it is that we've been trying to do. And so now we're at this point where, you know, okay, we, we mounted the show, um, but it was really coming from a place of, you know, a wholesome interest in education. And, and it kind of led us down this rabbit hole, more or less, you know what I mean? And fortunately, because the show was successful in London, and because we had been working diligently to provide our students with a good opportunity with something to, that they would be proud of singing, you know, and, and, and have a good experience, it kind of led us in this direction. So we learned a lot through this process of trying to bring the industry to people um, that otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And next week with your with your concert uh, with a full orchestra, you said that's unusual. So what's the date? Is the public invited? And why is that unusual? So it's unusual because I can only think on, I can name on one hand how many musicals have been performed with full orchestra. It's, it's definitely typically after a show has been on Broadway for 20 to 30 years sometimes. Mm. And so... You know, it's it's an honor because Alexander DaCosta, during COVID, actually, um, he was allowed to leave Canada for three days. And um, our industry presentation happened to be when he, you know, could could come to New York. And he fell in love with the score because of this idea of this pop sensibility mixed with this romantic classicism. Our music has a, almost a timeless quality. It's, 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 it feels very relevant to today, but it also has that sort of nostalgia that I think translates really well to orchestral music. And so, you know, I can think of oftentimes in my elevator pitch, I, I will say if Wicked and Sweeney Todd had a baby, um, that's sort of where Mad Hatter is. Excellent. This is, this is interesting because um, I don't think this has ever been done before. You know, th I think this is the first time for a music, a musical that's in our stage of development to be performed with a full orchestra. 
I, I don't think it's ever been done. And what are you hoping to get out of this this performance? What is the expectation and how big an audience? I mean, folks can come listen to this, right? Yeah. So Alexander DaCosta has been very inspired by the music. You know, Mike, having this amazing classical background, has been orchestrating the score, which was an originally for, I think, nine players originally, yeah. Mike, a more Broadway-type orchestration mm-hmm. has now orchestrated 62 players. Um with many different colors of instrumentations. Um, I know Alexander has plans. He wants to bring it to Sydney, Australia, to maybe an orchestral tour throughout Canada while we are still working on the fully produced version. And so we are inviting producers and investors to come to this. And we are actually raising capital to take the show to Toronto um, and residency and then open in the West End and eventually Broadway. So. That's sort of what we want to happen for the show, but we are now currently just getting the word out there about what Mad Hatter is and and how it's relevant to today and letting our music be the hero in this scenario. And it, it is open to to the public, but is it, is it sold out yet? And so it's nearly sold out. It's 1,500 seats at the Plaza des Arts or Plaza des Arts in, in uh, Montreal. I, th- I know that we have a few comps left <laughs> that were that were given away, but I mean, it's 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 more or less completely mm-hmm. sold out, and it went out and it, it went out fast, which is nice. And it is this April 16th. April 16th at 3 p.m. That's a very very exciting proposition, you guys. Um, I'm really <laughs> uh, I'm really happy for you, and I'm going to be very curious to hear how this evolves. But let's focus on the music. We've been talking a lot about the orchestral aspect of it, but you know, I've listened to a number of the songs and you know, there is that Latin, those love stories. Do you have sample songs on your website? But I know that there's I think 25 songs in the in the whole show. Right. It's a lot of music to write. Just give us some highlights of stylistically some of the different songs and what you're excited for people to take away from this work. One of the things I uh, like when Mike was talking about our collaborations and how he he gives an idea and like vocally, we kind of understand what he kind of sort of wanted us to hear. <laughs> One of the things I, I really love about how we've worked and how the music has turned out is because of Mike's background and his studies with classical music and composition, I come from, I learned to sing with my mom when I was 11. I learned to play the piano when I was 14 by myself on YouTube. And that's how I learned. And that's how I play. I play by ear. And when I'm writing, I'm usually very piano vocal driven when I'm writing music. And it's usually, it usually sounds very ballady. But behind that ballad sound and very simple chords, there is obviously that idea of, ooh, this could have this very weird sound. And I know Mike can do that because he has the tools to make that simple song something insane <laughs> and he can literally do that like um, one of the things that has been super excited to exciting to see how it evolved is actually the opening number pell to felt uh where in the song we learn the process of hatting and like how they use the pelts from the animals and use the mercury to make the hats it's so insane it, like there's no other word to describe how the music sounds it sounds so amazingly insane what he's made that is so it's very easy to get into the feeling of the show just from that first number before i pass it on to anybody else that wants to add to the to the music 
one of the things I, I really am very proud of as a songwriter in this in the show is one of the songs that I got to write for this character of the wife of the Mad Hatter called Out of Sight. It's the song about how she as as the wife and the the the, the mother in this household with her children are seeing the father figure go crazy mm. and not be the same person that he used to be and 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 how that shifts the the dynamics in the family and it's a very beautifully heartbreaking song mm -hmm. for a mother to help like sing about how she knows her children are being their father change in front of them and not for the better and what she can do to help them or guide them through that and and what their possibilities are and mike has done a ridiculous show orchestrating it it's going to be such a tearjerker i'm so excited to see people cry well family and that dynamic of family i mean that's a really powerful story thread so I'm excited to hear that as well. But can we go back to, so the opening song you said is insane, insane, insane. Is it insane because it's really well done or is it insane thematically to to match the Mad All Hatter? Of All of it. Okay. Mike, please fill me in. <laughs> so I, had st I started studying composition when I was 16 years old. I left Berklee School of Music when I was 16. I was there for a summer program and I won a singer-songwriter contest. And it was at this time when I was introduced to uh, a composer by the name of Roberto Pache. And this is really where I learned about the expansion of my harmonic vocabulary. So it may sound insane. To me, it sounds quite traditional. It's really not so complicated and so it's the opening number of the show. Vince wrote the lyrics and he actually, Vince, I mean, like I was not a part of this process for this opening number. The, instead of just writing it musically, Vince and Victor, you know, had really kind of written these opening oh. lyrics. And this was at the end of our process, you know, leading into our production for London because there was no opening of the show. We've been so focused on the ballads and the real story content of it. And it's just like, oh my God, it's the Mad Hatter. We need something that's going to make them a bit off keeled. And the way that it opens is really quite simple. If you want to make somebody feel uncomfortable, all you have to do musically is just confuse them. So here's our stability. We're going to go this way. Then we're going to go this way. It's actually not so complicated, but if you understand the harmonic vocabulary of how music functions, it actually happens quite simply while still keeping it exciting. So for this piece in particular, um, one of my biggest inspirations was Dmitry Shostakovich, who's a, one of the best, I think, 20th century composers. And so, you know, while, while it's crazy, it's chromatic, but it resolves. And so the tension increases and then it resolves and it increases and it resolves. It's this kind of inflating the tension to kind of say, hey, here we are. But the way that the after this over or after this piece happens, we get into the sentiment of what the Mad Hatter is, and we find that he's broken. You had asked, you know, why is this different or why is it, you know, unique and why is it not like anything else? It's because there's a pop sensibility, which is what Victor has. There's a proper training, um, you know, for me as a composer and then also just my background as a writer. Vince's sensitivity to drama. And so we're bringing these three energies together. Going back to your original question, you know, melting pot, 
what we said earlier, we use a different, you know, mediums of musical genres. I mean, in a mood, we explore the, the, the three Cheshire sisters and it's complete jazz, you know, and then we have the character of the Mad Hatter, which is a crossover operatic pop, you know, sensibility versus the Queen of Hearts, which is very oper- on the operatic side. Then we have Mary Beth, the Mad Hatter's wife with Yola, the Cheshire cat, being extremely musical theater belts. And so we are able to explore different varieties, but still bringing that continuity of that melody that makes it all feel familiar, even though in a mood could literally be performed at a jazz club, you know, or the Caterpillar at, at a Latin club with the new song, Who Are You? You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo season two based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? You've done a really good job of describing the conflict and the drama and the theme of instability because of the madness that's going on in the music. I'm curious from a book writing standpoint, can we talk a little bit thematically about the lead character and his story arc and the melding of the book and the music? You know, I think one of the also reasons that I feel like it's really working in this show is because we wrote things in tandem together. We, we went through some rabbit holes that didn't make it in, you know? And so because we just realized we were going down a dead end, you know? So where does the story end? We end up at the tea party. So th- that's where I really wanted to end the, the story. And so um, the very last thing that people see is Alice finding the tea party and then it's blackout. And so you hear one of our most uh, memorable melodies from Will You Be My Wonderland, the song, and we see Alice and there's a blackout. And so literally we saw this in London and people gasped. And then, you know, we had standing ovations. And so it was just that sort of surprise effect because there isn't really much mention of Alice at all, except for uh, I did give the, the Mad Hatter has a daughter and her, and her doll's name is Alice. Mm. There's a little bit of that, you know, um, sparking of, of, of that foreshadowing there. You know, in terms of the story, you know, we were able to, approach this as almost from this idea of building this art you know we didn't say what's going to happen with the hatter and only the hatter we, we we said okay i think that we need to do a quartet with the family and so we actually decided we wanted to do a quartet before we turned it into the the dinner scene which was how we created papa please which ended up being like a, a straight out of like very sondheimy interesting number in the show where we see conflict happening between the brother and the sister, um, the Mad Hatter's children. Uh, and then we get to, we, we see the aggressive behavior that the Mad Hatter has towards them. And so um, just sort of hinting a little bit at the, at the chaos after he's been selling hats all day and working with Mercury and 
all those types of things. And so what ends up happening is um, after the, the chaotic dinner party or dinner, dinner scene, I should say, in, in our story, the Mad Hatter actually, his, his mother was a ballerina and his father was a hatter. Okay. And so historically speaking, it's like in between upper and, and lower class. And so I wanted to sort of give that by giving these occupations by these two people who would kind of be in between. As we know of the Great Depression and the, it happened in England before it happened in the United States. And so I wanted to give this idea of the Hatter not selling his hats and um, starting to feel financial hardship. And so we explore that with him not being able to sell anything. And there's generational trauma that we find out in the overture that the Hatter wanted to dance like his mother and not be like his father. And mm. so uh, his father actually cripples him um, so he can never dance again. And so there is this idea of Franklin wanting to dance, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. It has nothing to do with anything like that. It's just, this is, this brought him joy when he was young and he is no longer able to do it. And so we explore this with Mary Beth, who is the, the mother and who is the Mad Hatter's wife. And they um, share a really tender moment where they actually dance they try to dance again and the Mad Hatter falls because he's, he's crippled and he can't, he can't actually hold himself. And so there's this beautiful duet called Relax, My Dear, where the mother is trying to let him know that everything's going to be okay. He'll sell hats tomorrow. And they have this beautiful tender moment where they actually touch each other and they dance and then he falls. And then, it's, then, then when the Mad Hatter falls, he goes down this downward spiral of, you know, being haunted by his father's hat, which contains the 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 port key which brings him to wonderland and then we start to explore this him being very depressed in london in wonderland or in london versus finding a sense of freedom and utopia in wonderland and so then in wonderland he is able to dance again because in in our show you know when you're when you're reading a book like Lewis's Carol's version, you can accept that everything's fantasy, but when you're watching a medium like musical theater, things need to be a little bit more explained in my opinion. And so we wanted to sort of have the psychedelic effects of Wonderland be explained by something, which in our show is the Wonderland crystal, which um, creates the Wonderland elixir. Then if you drink the elixir, it sort of connects everybody as a, almost a communion, but it also makes you feel the effects of Wonderland. In this case, it heals Franklin and he's able to dance again. So while we're in Wonderland, Welcome to Wonderland is almost this Irish jig number where he tastes the elixir and he's, he has full mobility back again. And so then he's able to dance, okay? Now we're gonna go, there's a lot of story that goes you know back and forth here, but to make a long story short, Wonderland is, is a sense of, of freedom and utopia for him. And then it's taken from him when his hat falls off, mm -hmm. okay? And the backstory is, is that Franklin's father did some bad things in Wonderland. And so he's being punished for his father's mistakes. Mm. And so, and so this idea of generational trauma comes back. And so there's multiple reasons why the Hatter goes insane. So then he does whatever he, whatever he can to get back to Wonderland, including murdering somebody. And so it's, you know, it, and so we have this interesting juxtaposition between off with your head. Um, so we have that sort of the queen sort of giving that energy. Um, and then also that, the queen doubles as the demon that haunts the hat, basically punishing Franklin. So there's a lot, there's a lot in there, a lot. Right. But you, you did a great job of answering a whole bunch of questions, but also Hatter, which I didn't, you know, the dancing part of it and the generational trauma 
Um, the generational trauma is really emotional and interesting and what his father did to him and being crippled. I mean, that's, that's something that most people can never overcome. And, and the idea that something that horrific and difficult, he goes to Wonderland and as you describe as a utopia and he finds his legs, his ability to, you know, dance again. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful reflection on what Lewis Carroll was writing about, which is identity, you know, self-expression, um, self-determination. And then you've coupled it with the Mad Hatter and madness and, you know, and insanity. And, and you can only imagine that his father had a lot of trauma and difficulties to do something that he like that to his son. A lot of what you just said should you know, sort of be part of that elevator pitch because it's it was a really powerful way of describing it. And being a creator and going in a lot of rooms and needing to express what the idea is and the for the why now, the why now is what you just said. Because now it's where I'm going to ask you about mental health, which is self-evident, but it's through the lens of a complex set of themes and ideas expressed with love stories that are Latin and beautiful dancing and somebody who's overcome huge trauma to succeed again. You know, it, I'm so glad that we have, we're, we're doing two episodes because there's a lot to sort of unpack here. Um, when Franklin gets back to London, he actually ends up stealing the Wonderland crystal for himself. Now, sort of overcoming uh, a little schizophrenic behavior because of the hat has been sort of haunting him. He has this bipolar behavior that he has this manic depressive nature of, of going in and out of, of Wonderland is actually kind of really messing with his head a lot as well. And so when he finds that he's able to, when he stole this crystal because he was rejected from the Cheshire cat who he had fallen in love with because he had murdered somebody to get back to Wonderland, he stole their port key to get back to Wonderland because he had to get back to see Yola, the Cheshire Cat. When she rejects him and says, no, you killed my friend. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He hits rock bottom. And so when he gets back to London, he, you know, is trying to sort of make sense of, of, of what's happening in his life. And his son ends up playing with his most cherished items from Wonderland. He, He's given a gift from Yola. He is that he's he's sort of hiding the crystal, and the son finds it. And he we 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 see a recreation of what happened in the overture, where the where the Hatter where where the Hatter Senior hits Franklin. Um, he is about to hit his son, uh, and it's this moment where sort of he realizes that he's lost his mind, and he he realizes that he is no good for his family anymore, and he's actually hurting them. And so um, Primrose, his daughter, stops it because she doesn't want to see her brother be beaten. And it's just this very heart-wrenching moment when you realize that the Hatter has no idea who he is and that he, he has lost his mind. And so he chooses to go back to Wonderland to accept the punishment from the Queen of Hearts rather than stay and bring his family harm. Villain, but it's not a hero. He's not technically doing the right thing, but because of his circumstances with, really, you know, losing touch with reality, there's, you know, it's 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 very complex. 
As is um, all mental health. And, um, you know, as parents, we, we hope to evolve, you know, past what our parents have done. Um, and sometimes, you know, people come from such trauma, they can only, you know, carry on what they what you know what they knew from their parents so you know the idea that at least in this story he recognizes what he's about to do and steps out and that's an that's an act of generosity to his family not the full hero that you might root for but as you said the anti-hero but it's also very human Alice in Wonderland is is a work that has literally, you know, given us a vocabulary to articulate the times we're going through, right? So you hear down the rabbit hole all the time, you know, you hear that in politics, you know, when Trump was in office, we're through the looking glass. Um, I went skiing with my kids the other day, and it's a winter wonderland. So Alice is always redefining a generation, and what's coming out of your musical, for sure, is the mental health crisis. So what are you hoping your musical will contribute to the vocabulary of the 21st century? What do you guys, what do you guys think? Well, I love that in our show, Yola, as of now, is being played by a man. So Victor's playing a female which is kind of an ode to our, the operatic background that, that Mike and I come from. You know, this dance role has been happening since the 1600s. All of a sudden, politically, it's, 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 it's causing almost like World War III right now in the United States with, this, with what's happening in Tennessee, with drag bands. And, you know, I mean, I just saw My Fair Lady and there were, there were men playing women and women playing men. And yet it's being banned in places like Tennessee right now. And so it's just an, another opportunity for us to show like, you know, it's not about gender. It's not about, it's, it, it's about humans and people and emotion. And this idea of fantasy can be fantasy, you know, and, and emotions are emotions. And it, it's just, I, I love that, you know, we're turning a few things upside down. Like we have the Cheshire sisters instead of the Cheshire cat. We give a more backstory into the Cheshire clan. You know, there's there, there's so many different di- different ways to answer this question. I just I think that we're being true to ourselves by incorporating this idea of uh, of our our, tw- our our 21st century. Yeah, know? I mean, there has been so much pushback. Uh, it's very it's very upsetting pushing back against this whole, you know, the trans uh, uh, all all of it in 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 Tennessee. So uh, I think that's you know important for sure. Um, but also, you know, I've been watching in in uh, in sports how many athletes are coming out and having mental health issues, and people you know, at first we're pushing back against them. I mean, come on, you have a great life. You're on the PGA tour. You're, you're a great tennis player. You travel the world. You have huge endorsements. Well, guess what? I'm a person first and foremost, and I'm freaking out over here. So, um, and I'm going to try and be brave and express that. And all of these things are, people are just trying to express a need, a need for the same theme we just talked about, identity and self-determination and self-expression. And that's the thing you want to keep hammering home um, because that's identifiable. People can relate. I think along with that, I would say that there's been a a prescribed way of, of how people should go through life. Like, for instance, there's an obligation I'm going to talk about a different type of identity, you know, but I think that is equally as as important as, you know, like there is a kind of prescribed way of of living now, like I should go to college or I should, 
you know, participate in these activities that are institutionalized rather than my own way of doing things, um, which is the way that, you know, I mean, I was kind of, you know, I just, I went through education from start to finish. I went from bachelor's to PhD 15 years. And I just thought that this is what I should be doing. Now, granted, all along the while, I knew that there were places that I could go, but I see with my students and Vince and Victor, I know, you know, and, you know, we can all share the same sentiment that we do see that there is a kind of institutionalized identity that has been kind of pre-programmed for how young people should behave, especially in a coming of age. I think in many respects in the 21st century, I think it's well-informed from, you know, previous institutionalized ideas. And I don't know if they're necessarily correct nowadays. And so I see the trauma, you know, that some of my students are going through just me as a teacher. And, you know, Vince, I think, you know, can agree because he's also teaching young people and we have these people coming through our programs and Victor's witness to him because he comes and he's been, you know, around him and understands it, that, you know, there is a sense of identity, but I think that it extends beyond, you know, a, a prescribed way of how people should be operating as opposed to uh, what it is that they could possibly be doing. And I think that Wonderland, you know, in many respects offers possibilities and it's just having that opportunity to go there. And this is kind of what I, I kind of, you know, gained from our own sensibility, you know, with, with the show is that it does encourage the imagination to fly and to know that there's no one way of doing things. There's no one way to live your path to find redemption for what it is that you're dealing with. Our Mad Hatter, he finds it after he's had children and after he's, you know, been through his trauma and he realizes that the best thing for his family is or is the new decision that he's going to make. You know, and I think that this is, um, it's a tough thing for many people to make difficult changes in your life. Otherwise, you find yourself miserable. And I think that our Hatter, while he's going mad, he does find joy and he understands the sacrifices that he's making. I'm so happy to have had this chat. Thematically, you guys have such a strong show, but as people, you're really creative and trying to share your knowledge, your education, and you're also reaching out to, you know, give folks a forum. There are so many aspects of how you're going through life that I I think, you know, a lot of us hope and want to be able to do be creative give back be creative give back it's a beautiful thing to uh to listen to and especially through the alice in wonderland lens a work that's been so imaginative and uh it's been generational um for you know been with us for 150 years um and you're finding a way to make it relevant now in the 21st century. So there was so much more to talk about. Um, I didn't have a chance to ask you. Um, I think I'll just do it anyway. If you were a character from Alice in Wonderland, who would you be and why? Go ahead. Victor, I'm going to ask you first, just because you're ha- you have the biggest smile on your face. So I don't know if it's that because you-, you have a Cheshire cat smile right now. So Right. <laughs> Only because it's so freaking obvious. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would just like the, the way that Vince wrote the Cheshire cats mm-hmm. and the Cheshire sisters is so fun and so... Yeah what like one of the things that I love to see on a stage is like and it's it's very familiar to see three female figures mm-hmm. as a clan doing like a, a very specific thing on a stage I love the way that these Cheshire cats are in our show and thinking about 
how they are with how the Cheshire cat is in Alice in Wonderland. It's so easy to see how the whole Cheshire race is so fun that I, I, I just have to be the Cheshire cat. Yeah. I just and, have to. <laughs> and once I put a picture up of you, uh, everybody's going to understand exactly why. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you have a great smile. That's the reason. Thank you. Michael. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I don't know. I think maybe when I was 19, I'd be the caterpillar for sure. <laughs> now that I'm 37, I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, I, I've kind of kind of lived through every role. Mm -hmm. I think right now I'm currently feeling like the Mad Hatter, mm -hmm. but I think Vince is really kind of coming into it more than I. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know, Mike. You kind of strike me as the rabbit. <laughs> the rabbit. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe I'm the rabbit. Maybe that's it. <laughs> like, let's go, let's go. We gotta go. We gotta go. Let's go. We gotta go. We gotta go. <laughs> and Vince? Well, I've been um, really getting uh, over the last few weeks ingrained in the Mad Hatter um, because I'm about to perform the role. But I'm actually going to answer it similar to what Mike Polo said. I mean, I love this idea of of the caterpillar actually, um, just because this 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 sense. You know, it reminds me so much of my grandfather. You know, uh, in the book, I think he's portrayed a little bit as a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, when I when I envision him, I, I think of him as more as wise and yeah. philosophical. Mm. And I think that's really what I want to be. In well, <laughs> so. those are those are excellent, excellent answers. And uh, so you gentlemen, thank you again so much. This is just you. part one. OK, because we're going to have more of the creative crew on. We're going to talk more about pop culture influences. We're going to talk more about why Alice. We're going to talk about more about the Hatter. But okay. until then, thank you for an epic morning of the Mad Hatter and your musical. <laughs> thank you, Frank, for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, real thank pleasure. You. OK, take care, gentlemen.